Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Porsche. And today we're joined by Sanchitza Vujic, Associate Professor of Applied Econometrics at the University of Antwerp. Sanchitza's research covers a very broad scope, education, crime, gender, health, and different dimensions of labour market and socioeconomic inequalities. Her research tackles problems of modern societies and has high economic and societal impact. So listeners to Policy Matters will know that this describes pretty much our perfect guest. Uh, so it is a pleasure to have you on the show, Sanchitza. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Franz, for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you for coming. Thank yeah, for coming. thank you for coming. And this is the first time um, we've actually interviewed someone whilst in another country. Um, so we finally hit on uh, one small benefit of lockdown recording. I guess in theory, we could have done this at any point in the past uh, 10 months or something, but uh, we finally to realizing, okay, we can- It takes a crisis for us to be innovative. Exactly, yeah, this is it. Necessity uh, being the mother of invention. So brilliant that you're here and able to talk to us. Um, and you may not know this, Sanchitza, but on Policy Matters, um, Franz and I have studiously avoided the topic of Brexit uh, for the majority of the past kind of four or five years. Um, but we did break that embargo last time and we discussed it a little bit uh, on the basis that after all of the talking and back and forth and everything uh, it's finally formally happened so it seemed like a, an okay time to discuss some of it and actually we talked a little bit about Brexit and migration and issues related to this and um, that is a kind of a slight link in uh, to something that you've worked on uh, and are working on at the moment um, and that's your paper on Brexit and hate crime in the UK so maybe we just thought you could tell us a little bit about that project yes uh, sure so uh, first it sounds like uh, you didn't want to talk about the elephant in the room but you yeah, can't avoid we, it anymore <laughs> yeah we, we didn't for a long time a lot i mean everyone talked about it right there was a lot of talking about it so we just thought well let's just steer clear and let's just uh, let other people do that but now it's happened we can kind of look back a little bit i think Yes, true. So as you know, as you both know, projects in economics have a rather long life cycle. So you're going to get a bit of a longish interest story how this uh, idea and motivation came into in existence. So um, prior to where I am currently, University of Antwerp, as you both know, I was at the University of Bath. And uh, our colleague Jonathan James and I started talking about uh, the project in 2013 already. Wow. Um, before Brexit referendum, uh, while um, I was in Bath. And the originally, we thought of looking at uh, examining the effect of the election of far-right candidates, so the British National Party councillors, on hate crime. So basically, mm -hmm. he sent me an article from Guardian, which made this link between elections and hate crime. He then sent me a couple of papers uh, that document uh, something similar. So in particular, Steve Machin's paper on the effects of 7-7 and 9-11 terrorist attacks on hate crime. And that's how we started thinking of this idea. Then life happened. So the, yeah. next, <laughs> the next time we started talking about it, it was already August 2016. So three years later, uh, after the Brexit referendum vote results, and by that time, I have moved from Bath to Antwerp, and I've been in Antwerp for two years. And then we started uh, talking again about picking up this, this project and getting data and funding. Um, at the time, there was a call from the ESRC on uh, Brexit-related uh, projects, and we basically invited Joanna Clifton-Spring to join the board. 
Um, and uh, we envisioned two strands of the project. So one looking at Brexit referendum vote and hate crime on one side, and Brexit referendum vote and migration on the other side. So um, the, the paper that uh, we are going to discuss is the one on Brexit on, uh, and hate crime, and the Brexit and migration is still in the making. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe we can come back to you in three or four years' time and see what yes. happens. To that one. Yes, You've just reinvited yourself back on. <laughs> yes, that's, that's good. Good get it in the diary. Well, um, so what we started first, uh, we started uh, uh, trying to get funding because this funding would either uh, buy us um, research time, so the funding would enable either John or Jonathan to spend more time away from teaching and more on research if we got funded uh, uh, from in the UK. And on my side, I could have funded a PhD student who would you know, have a similar role. I could delegate uh, the research to somebody else and this person could work full time on the project because it seemed like, like uh, something um, we, we needed time for. But um, we were pretty unsuccessful with getting funding. So we got rejected by oh, no. all, the, <laughs> all the UK uh, funding bodies. But that can be explained, not that we wrote a bad project proposal, but uh, more that it was really um, uh, a high supply of Brexit-related research. So we just had a very, very strong competition in the UK. But then I was also unsuccessful in, in, in Antwerp. And this can be explained by simply this topic not being really um, on, on, the, on the top of the agenda of the Flemish funding bodies. So, so, <laughs> yeah. so can imagine that is yeah, I'm sure they have other priorities. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I tried to make this link why Brexit is also relevant for, for Belgium, but that didn't, didn't fly. So, so, so funding-wise, we, we didn't manage to get funding. But what we did, uh, because available data on hate crime were not detailed enough, we actually spent most of 2017 sending freedom of uh, information uh, requests to police forces in the UK, uh, requesting detailed historical monthly data on hate crime, uh, both hate crime types, as well as broken down by nationality and the ethnicity of the victim. So 2017, it was really a very nice experience. So I would send an email from Antwerp to a police force in Scotland and they would reply and give me the data. I mean, I was, it was quite a... And quite this, is, oh, excellent. this is something that you've done before, right? Or, or I think... No, um... this is something that we've, at least I've never done before. So this was okay. the first time that we used this uh, channel of um, uh, collecting data. Did you find it that just out of just changing the topic here, did you find that an easygoing experience? I know a couple of academics have gone down the Freedom of Information Act route and some people say it's really challenging and difficult. Uh, so we actually um, we actually wrote a paper about it. Yeah, <laughs> so, this, is this is what I think that you wrote about. Um, so, so, so the process took uh, so much time and effort. It took us literally a year um, that we wrote actually a small kind of, um, not a manual, but it is an, a paper that is like a manual how to do it. And we gave some tips and tricks of uh, things that we went through. So for example, um, uh, you know, we, we first did a couple of uh, pilots. So we tested our uh, requests before like... Um, sending them to all police forces. So we tested them on a couple of uh, police forces to see what we would get. We, um, we actually send a template, Excel template, in which format we wanted the data to get. 
obviously some gave us the data in the format we wanted <laughs> and some didn't. So uh, the template was informative, but it wasn't always uh, guaranteed that uh, we would uh, get it. And, um, and because uh, of um, actually the data that we received from Scotland and Northern Ireland were not, uh, were not very uh, detailed enough, uh, we simply could not use them. So, um, so it was a long process. Um, yeah, it sounds like quite a challenge it doing is. all of this. You didn't get funding, you had to put in a lot of effort. So now I'm really interested. <laughs> what did you get out of yeah. this? What's so, the result of all this work? Came out of it because it's yes, like, indeed. So, so we we first uh, wrote this paper, and that this got published actually uh, last year in Plus One, and uh, we didn't get a funding. But um, I started supervising uh, a promising PhD student in Antwerp who was interested in topics related to to crime, and I put him on the job. So after oh, agreeing nice. with uh, John and Jonathan, so Joel Carr joined the project in 2020 so think of timing seven years after the wow. original idea and um, and this is where the project really uh, took off because uh, we could bombard joel with different data sets and different ideas and he could he could work and report back and we had endless endless <laughs> online meetings so even before um, uh, before this COVID-19 uh, reality, because we were simply in two different countries. So we, we, uh, we had so to work online. You were pioneering the Zoom meeting. Uh, way ahead, you're way ahead of the curve, so that's good. Well, um, I, can, I, can, I can talk about it later. I even pioneered distant, uh, distant teaching, if you want, <laughs> way before. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> But anyway, the paper, the paper, the paper. The let's, paper. Let's, 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 what did you find? Because, you know, Brexit and hate crime is something that I think at the time, around about the time of Brexit, was in the news. It was kind of out there on, you know, in the newspapers, on the websites, uh, anecdotal evidence going around that, you know, there was an increase, very strong emotional feelings from both sides of the, uh, of, of, from the referendum. So take us through it. What are the results? What happened to hate crime? So indeed, you're right. When we started working on the project, there was a documented rise in hate crime after the Brexit referendum result. And this was reported by the Home Office, among other, and it was quite substantial. However, if you think of this reported spike uh, in racist and religious abuse incidents um, in England and Wales within the first month since the uh, referendum, uh, they have been attributed to the vote itself, but they could have been other things that, uh, that basically caused this spike. So while these ch changes coincided with the referendum, they could have been correlated with the vote itself rather than triggered by it. By it. So it is possible that other economic and political factors uh, resulted in both the Brexit vote and the changes in hate crime incidents. The vote may have also led to increased reporting of hate crime by victims and witnesses or better recording by the police. And both trends could have further been amplified by the media and social media reporting. And we, have, we find some evidence in support for this, but this, is, this cannot uh, be the major explanation of the results. 
So since we aim at uh, identifying causal relationship between Brexit uh, referendum vote and hate crime, what the paper does, it uses uh, racial and religious hate crime as a sort of treatment uh, target group, if you want, and other crime categories as a control group. And um, if to this end, we are using econometric techniques such as difference in differences and synthetic control methods. And the idea is that um, that uh, the Brexit vote was unlikely to impact other crimes, such as burglary, shoplifting, and drug use, but had a direct impact on racial and religious hate crimes. So we essentially uh, use this, uh, this bundle of other crimes or create a static control crimes from these other crimes to estimate what would have happened in the absence of the referendum. So uh, these control crimes or the control crime group is constructed in order to make the true racial and religious, uh, religious hate crime um, and the synthetic racial and religious hate crime as similar as possible prior to referendum. So this parallel trans assumption that, that, that is essential for both uh, difference in differences and the synthetic control method settings. So if you think about it, if these pre-referendum trends of this uh, treaty that control crimes overlap, then any post-referendum gaps uh, can be attributed to the treatment, to the referendum uh, effect. So we right. kind of... I think we just lost 99% of our audience. So I'm just <laughs> going to recap it for anybody who's still there. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to put it into plain English. <laughs> that basically, <laughs> what but you're that, doing is, <laughs> this is a, you're looking at... <laughs> this is the best that I can. <laughs> this, is, this is the best you can do. It. Don't worry, don't worry. Let me try and do it even simpler if I can for anybody who's still listening. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, I understand, me and Matt understand what you're doing. But basically, you know, the idea of this paper is it's not anecdotal or, or you know, you're not looking at before and after. You're trying to really get kind of behind this causal estimate by actually looking at other crimes, right? So the important thing here is the other crimes. So other crimes are happening and we would not expect those things to have changed. And then you're looking at what happens to the racial and the hate crimes. And um, wh what was the effect? Have you mentioned what the effect was yet? No, I haven't the outcome. what the <laughs> come, come. yet. <laughs> so, um, well, the, the estimated effect uh, that we find is actually much smaller than the one reported by the Home Office. So that can, uh, so Home Office re, uh, reports a 41% increase in hate crime after the Brexit referendum vote, whereas we find 15 to 25% rise in the recorded hate crime, uh, which can be attributed to the Brexit referendum vote itself. And we also find that this effect is concentrated in the first quarter after the re referendum. So July uh, to September 2016. So we find that this effect is not long lasting. Uh, and these uh, painstakingly co uh, collected FOI data are actually very important because um, uh, they enable us to, uh, to look at the monthly frequencies and we can show that the spike was the largest in July 2016, so in the month immediately after the referendum. So, so the, main, the main message is that we estimate a smaller effect than what was previously reported and that we can isolate that this effect is short-lasting and really focused in the month of July 2016 immediately after the referendum vote. And this is super important just to kind of think about um, why we do these kind of causal, you know, these, com these complicated techniques that you describe. Um, and for very good reason, because as you say, the original kind of reporting and the Home Office reporting this huge spike in, in 
um, hate crimes after the referendum vote. But actually, when you kind of forensically look at it and deal with all these other things that could be going on and kind of do it in a much more scientific, controlled way, you, you know, the, the fact that it's a much smaller effect is really important because you can imagine the kind of um, way in which these things can escalate and the kind of political tensions can be heightened. Um, so it's really, you know, this is what we're this is what we're in the business for, right? To do these kind of um, sets of research that are allowing us to pin down the actual effect. But I'm just interested as to why you think it was just a kind of one month, two month situation and then dissipated. Is it, was it just kind of almost like a temporary madness of people just thinking, okay, this vote's happened, this gives us the license to go out and, and you know, say some abusive things and then everyone collectively somehow kind of took a breath and realized, no, that's not okay. I mean, what, what happened, do you think? Uh, so we do interpret uh, um, the, the effect of Brexit as a, or Brexit referendum as a sort of information shock, um, which basically allowed some people to, to make their beliefs now public. So whatever they, they, uh, they, they believed pre previously, now they realized, okay, there are other people that think like them. Um, and why do we think that the effect was short lasting? So we document evidence that suggests that there was um, uh, a backlash against this rise in hate crime, uh, typified by social media campaigns that were rallied against this rise in hate crime. And furthermore, just over a month after the referendum, the government announced that prosecutors will be urged to push for tougher sentences for those committing hate crimes. Um, and this was also published in the news. And they also pledged additional funding for protective security measures at vulnerable faith institutions um, uh, also to, to, to have the same goal. So this combination of measures would increase the cost of committing hate crime and in turn increase the cost of breaking the social norm uh, and may explain why this effect was not lasted. So there was a very strong uh, kind of uh, reaction to it and uh, a strong accent that this was not okay and this, that the government is not going to tolerate that. Okay, well that's good. At least we kind of had a reset of the of the norms. It's a kind of it's a shame the government did it didn't do it um, you know like a month earlier and uh, and we could have avoided a whole lot of crime. But uh, I guess these things are dynamic and there's a certain kind of uh, action and reaction um, element to it. But um, cool. Well, I mean that is a crime paper and um as we mentioned at the beginning you know you your work covers quite a lot of different areas um but i always think of you as as having these wide areas but like friends and i um having kind of education labor market being the kind of home turf um as to where your research uh traditionally has been um and that kind of links a bit with some recent papers you've got um looking at migration issues immigration um, and the labour market outcomes of migrants, and in particular uh, refugees. And so I just wanted to ask um, about one of your papers on refugees arriving in Belgium and how they fared in the labour market compared to other migrants, because it's a topic, you know, refugees, we've had waves of refugee crises in, in Europe, and, and uh, it's, it's often associated a little bit with kind of Brexit issues and migration, all this kind of stuff. So just, yeah, really interested to know um, how did the refugees in Belgium get on uh, in the labor market compared with other people arriving? So indeed, this has been a, a hot topic uh, around Europe, uh, as well as in Belgium. 
uh, and I've been working on different projects in relation to this. So the project that you mentioned is with my colleagues Yves, Mark, Yves Marx and Dries Lenz. Um, and it looked into how recent refugees fare in the labor market. And uh, the comparison group were either other migrants, other types of migrants, so family migrants or labor migrants like, like myself, as well as the, as the natives. So that's one project that uh, specifically focused on, on refugees. And then there was another project with Karel Nails and Jonas Wood, which looked into the labor market integration of different groups of job seekers who look for a job via the main Flemish employment agencies, uh, including migrants as well as migrant women. So this is very much a work in progress and maybe I will talk about it later um, to, to kind of explain uh, some of the, the mechanisms. But these are the two strands which, of, of research that uh, I worked on related to um, integration of migrants into the local labor market and particularly refugees and then uh, other types of migrants. So the paper with Yves and Dries examines the labor market trajectories of refugees who arrived in Belgium between 1999 and 2009. And Belgium offers a relatively easy formal labor market access to refugees and other types of migrants, but they face many other barriers in this uh, very much regulated and institutionalized labor market. So based on the longitudinal data set, so which follows the, the different cohorts over time, uh, and which also links respondents' information from the Belgian Labor Force Survey with their social security data, which uh, enables us to see their work histories. Um, we use uh, what it's called the discrete time hazard models to analyze uh, their... Um, okay, uh, we're going to need you to come in again, friends. I hope some students are listening to this. <laughs> yeah, well, these are the techniques that you learn in a, in, a, in a degree, the econometrics that we're teaching. And so, uh, you know, it's good to know that these are making it into you know proper academic papers and, and being used but yeah so you use this you look at these uh these group of of refugees and look yes. at their outcomes over time and yes. follow their kind of trajectory and, and uh, what what's the and what's the we, we are looking at their entry into and exit out of the first employment uh, spell and we contrast their outcomes with um, uh, family and labor migrants of the same arrival uh, cohort so what we show is that uh, refugees take a much longer time to enter their first employment spell as compared with other migrant groups. And they also run a greater risk of exiting out of this first employment spell back either into social assistance or into unemployment. And these low uh, employment rates of the refugees are not only due to a slow integration process upon arrival, but also reflect the disproportional risk of exiting the labor market after a period of work. So we need to think not just uh, about them entering the labor market, but actually staying in the labor market. So how to get them into the sustainable labor market uh, tra trajectories. And that, I mean, that's the really key thing for, for policy, I guess, and not just in Belgium, but in, you know, it equally apply in the UK, you think about refugees arriving and it's, I, I suppose to some extent people think okay if these people just get into a job then everything will be fine after that but what you've shown uh, is that it's not so easy right so there needs to be more um, sustained support for people to stop them kind of churning out of these jobs um, and back into kind of welfare 
Um, I mean, do you think in Belgium, particularly, it's uh, a language issue? Uh, because I know you have uh, different languages, people speaking Belgium, uh, Flemish, I guess, and, and French. And Bel Bel is there an actual Belgian? I'm trying, my, my mind is going blank now. <laughs> German, German's got a language, dude. German, okay, yeah, I was just True. thinking, is there is, 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 is Belgian uh, a thing? But, um, so we can we can talk about the Belgium uh, labor market in another episode. I think it would take us. Uh, it would it would require a separate uh, program. I well, think. let me ask you something. Um, let me sort of uh, move on to another paper which ties into the labor market. And this one I found quite interesting. I mean, the story about migrants having difficulties integrating to the labor market. You know, most countries will have a scientific literature on that. That that it is challenging. Uh, you know, whatever wherever you're looking at, whatever time period, whatever country. But, but, but what I found particularly interesting, you had these papers on volunteering. And that's not something that I really kind of thought about much or come across. Um, I'm going to put my hand up right now and say that I'm not uh, uh, an amazing volunteer in society. Uh, although I am involuntary volunteering for teaching duties at the moment uh, for my <laughs> yeah. children. So I, I expect that. Well, I mean, I, we, we did all get that letter from Boris Johnson. I was more hoping for a medal, but uh, a letter wasn't <laughs> suffice for now. Um, but yeah, volunteering, you wrote some papers on volunteering. Can you just take us through that very quickly and what were the outcomes there? Yes, uh, sure. And you will get uh, another short intro story because, <laughs> uh, um, yes, I always like to give um, a setting, a setup where something uh, came into existence. So um, yes, these volunteering papers use an, ex an interesting experimental setup, which is really um, primarily on my co-author's uh, Steinbart research uh, agenda. So if you look at his CV, you will see that he's really an uh, expert on these uh, field experiments, as we, as we call them. So um, uh, just after I arrived to, to Belgium, uh, Stein and I, I met at the Belgian Day for Labor Economists, where else? Um, and uh, he saw some of my related work on pro-social attitudes and values, which I actually done um, in the past, and asked me if I wanted to work with him on a paper which related um, the effect of volunteering on the labor market opportunities. So uh, at the time that I moved to Belgium, I came, as, as I said, as a, as a labor migrant, but my partner who moved to Belgium at the same time started his professional life basically from zero at the age, at the age of 45. Uh, and he was going through the labor market integration trajectories, uh, which, which we briefly mentioned, but which are very um, systematized um, and obligatory actually since a few years ago in, 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 um, in Belgium. Uh, and we need to think uh, uh, separately about Flanders, Wallonia, because then, as you say, you need to integrate with a different language. And maybe if you are in this small German part, you also need German. So this integration trajectory actually spanned from learning Dutch and going through the citizen integration program. So if you need to learn one Dutch word, that word is uh, in Burgering. Um, to actually What's in Burgering? What's it? What does it mean? I speak Dutch. I, it turns out I speak Dutch, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, uh, Burger is a citizen. So you can imagine in Burgering, you're like becoming integrated as a citizen. Uh, okay. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression which is commonly used. They try to Google translate it, but it says just integration. Uh, so it's a, it's a type of citizen integration. So he had to uh, so follow a learning Dutch trajectory, then go through this integration program. And once his Dutch was as, a, 
as a, at the minimum level required, he could then follow one of the um, active labor market programs offered by the Flemish uh, employment agency. So he basically retrained to do a completely new uh, profession uh, that he never done before. Um, and while doing this, uh, he also started volunteering in the local uh, theater and the concert venue, De Roma. So when Stein proposed to work on the project related, uh, relating volunteering and the labor market outcomes, I immediately agreed to this because I was, I was really curious also from my personal, um, uh, personal perspective. So um, when I joined the project, Stein already had the data. So as I said, these field experiments are really more of his, uh, his uh, expertise. So, um, so with the help of master thesis students, he basically sent pairs of uh, fictitious job applications to real vacancies in Flanders, which were posted by commercial and non-commercial organizations on the Flemish Employment Agency website. So you can think of pairs of these fictitious job applications, which are the same across all characteristics, but they differ um, with respect to the treatment in this case being um, uh, whether a person, one person volunteered or uh, reported having volunteering experience and the other person didn't. Uh, additional characteristics that we wanted to, uh, to uh, examine were the effect of gender. So we you would have then um, uh, uh, pairs of um, these fictitious in uh, CVs, which are both male or both female. Uh, and we also wanted to examine the effect of, of migrant status. So this was, so the, again, using the, the terms, uh, so randomization of these characteristics was done uh, across different pairs. So you would have the same uh, pair uh, with respect to gender and the same pair with respect to migrant status with different, uh, differing uh, the volunteering treatment. Uh, and then uh, other randomization was done across um, across different pairs. So this is uh, just to interrupt. This is like we've often talked about on the program about how you know we don't often get to do experiments in kind of social science and policy, um, but that's the kind of ideal. You know, a bit like with these vaccines that everyone's trying or has been trying, where you kind of give vaccines to some people and give the placebo to other people, and then you can be if you do it at random, then you can be sure that it is the, you know, the vaccine that's caused the change or, or, or whatever the outcome is you're measuring. So here, so, yes, this, this, is, this is, this is as close as you can get to experiments in, uh, in social setting. And, but you're using these fake CVs. So if anyone, you know, our listeners will, um, may not be familiar with this, but this is something I've seen, you know, seeing a fair bit happen down the years in, in various, um, research literatures where people will send out, you know, to try and test discrimination. And in this way, it's yours is slightly different because it's trying, trying to test like a positive um, aspect on the labor market, right? Whereas a lot of the time people would send out pairs of CVs and one with a very, um, a name that sounds very American and another one with a name that sounds very, um, like it's come from an ethnic minority group and then test whether people get callbacks. So it's kind of picking up discrimination. What I wonder about, so I mean, this is great that you're looking at a kind of a more positive thing, is like the ethics committee, how does how does this, because I was thinking, you know, these companies are getting all these job applications and spending time sorting through them and then find out, oh yeah, actually those two people, whether you shortlisted them or not, they don't exist. And uh, I just think, okay, I've never had to write an ethics application that involved this sort of thing. How does that, how does that work? 
So as I said, uh, when I joined the project, Stein or, already had the data, but I know that he got ethics approval from the University of Ghent, and uh, he's been doing this type of experiments. So you would need to invite him for further details. Okay, um, we'll find out how to do uh, it. But, but, but basically, kind of and what what happened here then? So we you've got the the experimental setup. You've got some people who've got volunteering experience and some that haven't. And uh, what what's the result? Is there some positive benefit of the volunteering? So indeed, um, so we find that uh, people uh, who, um, who basically reported doing volunteering work, they're more likely to get a positive reaction to their job applications. Uh, and this volunteering premium is actually higher for, uh, for females. Uh, and this is um, a bit of a different finding than was previously reported in the literature. And we also find that, uh, so for example, when we compare the these uh, ethnic sounding and native, so native sounding uh, CVs that um, when, when you compare the native candidates with, um, with uh, migrant candidates without volunteering activities, then the, the native candidates receive more than twice as many job interview invitations than the non-volunteering uh, migrants. However, when you put um, the volunteering uh, activity or compare CVs with uh, and without volunte volunteering activities, we actually find that um, then this hiring discrimination basically disappears. So both uh, volunteering migrants and volunteering natives have the same uh, probability of um, receiving job interview invitations. So in a way, there is a very positive uh, positive. I mean, I effect. think that is... That is a really interesting finding. The fact, I mean, I never really thought about it. I do a lot of interviews these days. I would say probably if I saw evidence on a CV that somebody volunteered, it would flag up as a positive signal in my mind and I would probably be more attracted to it. That seems kind of logical to some extent. Although I question whether I would do it for very senior positions, probably more for like lower middle, middle level positions. I think this just, I mean, not that I've done it. I'm just sort of thinking about it in the spur of the moment here. But I think what is particularly interesting is the fact that it sort of nullifies a negative effect for migrants. That is a real kind of uh, interesting finding that I suspect might have policy implications. I'm thinking here, you know, do employers who I suspect are often native employers, uh, i.e. the individual who looks at the, the CV, do they see it as evidence maybe that the migrants have successfully integrated? So it's like a signaling thing that's coming through or, or what do you think? I, I definitely think uh, it's, a, it's a signaling thing and it might uh, actually uh, be an additional signal of, a signal of commitment and the willingness to integrate into, the, into this new um, environment and labor market environment. Um, and in terms of these, um, so definitely in terms of policy, government, government can encourage both women and migrants to participate in volunteering activities, and this can be a stepping stone to labor market uh, integration. So going back to the experience of, of my partner, so um, I definitely think that these uh, uh, volunteering experiences, if maybe not directly helping him get a job, but I think uh, they helped him um, uh, stay in a job <laughs> because he gained confidence, uh, he had the chance to practice the, the new language, um, and he also got experience because later on he found a job in related uh, activities that he was actually volunteering. 
Um, and just to give you an example, um, I just found that, for example, this Flemish Agency for Integration and in Burkhering. So oh, in yeah. Burkhering uh, is definitely a different thing from, now, yeah. <laughs> but it's actually called integration and in Burkhering. So I, I couldn't translate it as integration as integration. So. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, they organized uh, in February and March of this year, a series of webinars, which are directed at professional bodies and local government bodies on how to create a stimulating environment for volunteers with migrant backgrounds. So um, well, that's, the I mean, link. That is amazing, because that is like the kind of part, we've talked lots about policy impact and how you get your kind of research translated into making, you know, policy matters. We know that policy matters, right? And so uh, to make, see your research kind of directly applied in that way. And that's, you know, that's, that's what, again, that's what we're aiming for. So it's really, um, Fantastic. Hashtag jealous. Hashtag jealous. Hashtag jealous. <laughs> yeah. 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 This is hashtag impact case study for uh, showing yeah. how your research translates <laughs> into direct impact. And that, you know, going back to numbers, that is huge that, you know, normally there's a, you know, two and a half times difference in the callbacks and volunteering yeah. equalizes that for migrants. I think that's huge. Yeah. And also, it's really nice that it's, you've got that kind of personal background story about your experience and with your partner moving to Belgium. Um, it's not often that our kind of work lives and research lives and, and home lives kind of, you know, overlap in that way and, and have kind of research that uh, really means something to us. I mean, if I, unless I start doing a load of papers now about early child education and uh, how, to, uh, how to teach kids to read and how to do that sort of thing at home. Um, Matt, you say this, have... you say this. My wife literally ran into my office earlier saying, did you read this news article today? Look our son is going to be losing 40,000 pounds worth of education, uh, worth of income over his whole life because of this whole COVID mess and not having school. What are you going to do about it? And I was like, oh my God, that's my research. Well, it's not my research, that particular piece, but it's related <laughs> to my research. Yeah, so yeah. I, I had a funny moment where actually this morning, the research that we're, we are doing literally was thrown back into my face by uh, my beloved one. Yeah. Okay. So that's not the kind of overlap between our uh, research and our actual home lives that we want. But yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, that's something we've we've touched on previously, but and I'm sure we'll talk about again in the future. But just this, what people are missing out on, uh, what children are missing out on, and what the implications are going to be um, further down the line. Uh, because that's yeah, it's we we don't know obviously when schools are going to reopen and, and when everything's going to get back to something like normal. Um, but at some point, we'll definitely have to come and talk about this again, uh, because it's it's going to be a huge, huge ramifications for, for education and, uh, and then the labor market. Well, talking about education a little bit, I know that Sunshita has uh, also education papers. She's one of these super duper economists who looks at education as well. We like that. We like. And we um, like. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should call this the education show <laughs> in the future. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, I know that, that, that you looked at fertility and fertility is something that, that a lot of people, a lot of health economists or health scientists have looked at. Uh, so you've looked at fertility. Do you want to give us a quick overview of, of the findings there and also kind of why it matters? Um, okay, so, so you, um, I, I, I've read and I heard that uh, you also invited Steve Machin uh, on the show previously. Yeah, that's in our, our, you know, in our hit list of uh, previous shows. Steve was <laughs> great. So Steve talked about your research with him on education and crime. Um, yes. So, yeah, we, we can't 
we can't talk to you about that really because uh, <laughs> it's such already. a good job talking about it. But, this um, was already on the agenda. But, uh, <laughs> but indeed, uh, so uh, together with Steve Machin and uh, Olivier and Marie, we have a couple of papers which look at education and crime when we use this different natural experiment setup to establish the causal relationship between education and crime. So in one of them, we use compulsory schooling, uh, living age laws, which I know both of you have worked on and have this nice paper where you document all the historical compulsory schooling living age laws in the UK. Uh, I use that, by the way, uh, for teaching. Uh, oh, good, good. I, that uh, that uh, graph from or that table from your paper. Get it downloaded by all your students as regularly <laughs> as possible, if that's uh, if that's okay. Um, and then the, the second uh, the second paper used um, um, education expansion, the so-called education expansion in the late 80s and beginning of 90s in England and Wales as again this uh, natural uh, experiment or as a, another term instrumental variable for, okay. uh, for <laughs> education, which I can try to explain uh, what it is. That's okay. So I think basically the idea we've talked before about these kind of natural experiments. And as you mentioned, when the school leaving age changes, the minimum age you have to be to leave school. And so one group of kids, once the law changes, have to stay, you know, if they wanted to leave, they have to stay longer and they get more education. So it acts like a bit of an experiment. So I think our listeners of, 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 of hope, hopefully if they've been listening, <laughs> they'll be familiar with that idea. But your paper on, on the education and fertility used this just the fact that in the UK, as you said, in the late 80s, after um, I think it was the Educational Reform Act, we got change in the exams and ba basically people started staying in school longer um, over a, quite a short period of time. Suddenly the, the average years of schooling increased quite a lot. And then that again acts a bit like an experiment where you suddenly have uh, a group of people who've got a substantial um, increase in their schooling compared with the previous years. And so, um, that's the you know the setup um yeah and thanks what, uh, that's okay uh, and and what um wow, that's uh, you what, know a very good interview there <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. i was um, uh, i was prepared to interview back <laughs> i prepared some questions that's okay so then so then what do you find then so this we get the shock to education and then and the impact on uh, on fertility um, so, so indeed, so this paper is then uh, jo uh, joint work with uh, with your colleague uh, Jonathan James, with whom I am also working oh, yeah. uh, on on Brexit and hate crime. So Jonathan had a related paper where he looked at education and health outcomes using the same um, uh, natural experiment. So now we uh, moved uh, to fertility outcomes. Uh, so we actually do not find any effect of education on adolescent births, but we find effects further up the age distribution. And the reason for this is that the changes that we use, this education expansion, um, which we use actually uh, Im impacted the probability of first birth at ages above which they bind. So above the adolescent years. So it's not surprising that we find effect uh, further down uh, or further up the age uh, distribution. So there are a couple of related papers by Tanya Wilson and Mary, Mary Sills uh, where they do use compulsory school living age laws in this context. And they do find the negative, um, they, they do find that um, uh, additional years of education actually negatively affect uh, uh, teenage pregnancies. Um, but they use this, uh, this other um, uh, experimental or 
um, experimental setup or, or the, the, the natural experimental setup. And for that, um, for that though, the interesting thing there is if you're looking at teenage fertility, you can imagine it's because people are in school, right? So um, I think the mechanism there is that instead of leaving school at 16 or 15 or 16 and going into a job and meeting kind of like older men and this sort of thing, and that was a kind of mechanism whereby people would fall pregnant earlier as these things tend, you know, sometimes happen, right? Um, Whereas if you're in school, it could be men of the same age. It doesn't have to be older men. Could be men of the same age, right? But I think, well, uh, yeah. Just Before just we single anybody out here, uh, no, no. But I think the, you know, on average, men are older than women in partnering. Anyway, um, so. So yes, you're completely right. So uh, there are two things I want to say on this. Uh, so um, we interpret our findings uh, not as an incarceration effect, but more as a human capital plus sing signaling uh, effect and it's difficult to disentangle whether it's and how much it's human capital and how much is uh, signaling and if we go to men um, we are also looking at the data why you don't hear so much uh, in this set of stories so, or you ask yourselves where are the men where they're not in the data <laughs> so there are very few men uh, uh, who are actually teenage fathers so if you are um, there we go friends this is what i'm saying that it's, it's <laughs> not the teenage boys who are the fathers it's the older, older men right? well um well there there's just not that many data uh, on them and uh, second uh, information is that um, uh, these teenage mothers are usually single mothers uh, so right. that's why it's difficult to find um uh, the, the story for fathers in this context. Uh, so just just a remark uh, there because I'm currently working on on a different data and uh, we just don't don't have enough fathers to identify any effects. <laughs> I see. Well, it sounds like I mean you've got that paper and and, and we know there are several other papers that we would um, ideally have talked to you about, but I think we're going to have to invite you back um, <laughs> for another show at some point because there's just too many. Um, interesting papers uh, that we would want to want to talk to you about. But before we we wrap up, uh, what we normally do uh, is ask our our guest what they would do if suddenly Franz and I uh, take over the running of the country, which you know might happen uh, one day. But um, and and we get to appoint who we want into the kind of senior government roles as Secretary of State for a certain area. But I think as we've talked about in in your case. There are several different kind of policy domains that you would be, uh, you know, a useful addition for. So maybe we could make you uh, the cabinet office minister or uh, minister without portfolio so you can range over a whole lot of policy areas. So if we were to give you this power, um, as I say, we haven't got it at the moment, but, you know, it could happen in future. If we were to give you that that role, what what would you be looking to do in the UK? Obviously, you were here for quite a few years working and so, you know, the kind of UK situation so what what would you your priority be for improving our economy and our society and inequality and that sort of thing what policy would you be going for well um uh that's a that's a big question and I, just to to make a, a small uh, side note in the past i've been off, offered uh, offered i've <laughs> been i've been set, uh, offered uh, a position of the ministry of culture if wow. some of my friends ever go into position so so oh, okay. i was asked in that in that context before so i was thinking of that so now i now i have a new agenda to to think about um so um i would i would basically try to put the money where my mouth is or i would try to um 
to to use the the my research to kind of design some of the policy uh, pol uh, policies and i would uh, focus on on really um on improving uh, the labor market position of women. So I also have research that, uh, that uh, looks into gender pay gap and gender pension gap. And uh, the second strand of polit policies I would, uh, I would uh, look into is really reducing inequality and increasing intergenerational mobility, because I think that equalization of education attainment of those from different socioeconomic backgrounds is really an important tool for improving the equality of opportunity in society. So when it comes to improving the labor market position of women, uh, you could think of policies like free childcare, uh, for example, yeah. which is particularly... Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> which yeah. is... Uh, yeah. and right now which we'll is, uh, Now even... Uh, right yeah, now. Now, now we, we all realize how important this is in case anyone doubted that before. Um, uh, in terms of uh, career progression, you can think of board quotas, although the literature shows some uh, mixed uh, evidence uh, on how successful they are. And definitely the campaigns trying to challenge the traditional roles in, uh, within the household and the policies which would stimulate the vision of labor in the household, because uh, this, uh, this crisis is already being labeled as a she session as opposed to men's session, which was the, the previous uh, crisis. So, so policies in, in that uh, direction when it comes to improving the labor market position of uh, women. Uh, when it comes to education, you can think of uh, policies that stimulate education um, expansion among the lower socioeconomic background youth. But you also need to think not just in terms of uh, years of education, but also the content of education. You also need to think about better vocational education track. I think you can, can have a definitely sure. a better yeah. vocational education uh, track and maybe creating a, a more affor affordable higher education. So um, uh, well, otherwise I... um, you might actually lose some of the educational market uh, or the dominance in the educational market, particularly now with, with all the Brexit and COVID uh, situation. I think we've got, we've got back to where we started. Uh, so that's a neat <laughs> kind of uh, wrap up there. And I think you've got the job, Sanchez. So that was a very comprehensive uh, um, list of policies and ideas. And, and all of them, I think, resonate with what, what Franz and I would be thinking. So, uh, you know, we can't offer it formally because we don't, <laughs> we're not in power yet. But, um, but just rest assured that if ever that that day comes then uh, we'll be we'll be on the phone to you to bring you in but um it's been fantastic to talk to you since it's really interesting and and we definitely should have you on again because uh, there's still so many interesting papers to talk about so thank you very much well thanks uh, thank thanks a lot uh, for inviting me it's it's been a pleasure and it's always good talking and seeing you both and well if i ever run a radio show you would be the first guests uh, <laughs> well, i hope so on yeah. my radio we've show we've given you i think i think that's only fair but uh, no fantastic <laughs> look forward to the invite yeah, yeah yeah thank you so much it's been a pleasure thank you thank you thank you for inviting me you've been listening to policy matters my name is franz Buscher. and i'm matt dixon and we'll be back with more soon <laughs>